Welcome to the Infrastructure Show. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Schofer of Northwestern University. The Infrastructure Show is designed to present to listeners the reality of America's infrastructure, its condition, why it is the way it is, and what can be done about it. We gratefully acknowledge contributions to sustain the Infrastructure Show from Dr. Robert Peskin, Dr. Raymond Ellis, and Andrea and Ron DeFeo. The United States experiences over 1,200 tornadoes each year, ranging from EF0 storms with winds up to 85 miles an hour to EF5 tornadoes with wind speeds over 200 miles an hour. Deaths, injuries, and damage to structures can be extensive. Can we design buildings to reduce the consequences of tornadoes? Our guest today, Dr. Mark Levitan, has spent his career coming up with ways to do just that. Mark is now lead research engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technologies National Windstorm Impact Reduction Program. He also chairs the American Society of Civil Engineers Committee that developed the newly added tornado provisions of the updated ASCE minimum design loads and associated criteria for buildings and other structures. That is standard ASCE 7-22. Mark, I'm very happy to be talking to you this morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. Uh, let me start with this, with an easy question. Are tornadoes more than just strong winds? Are they just like intense hurricanes, or are they something different? No, there's something different. The, the tornadic winds have different characteristics than winds from other types of windstorms, including uh, hurricanes and, and thunderstorms and, and straight-line winds, and such that designing for tornadoes is not the same as designing for other windstorms. I know you've spent a, a lot of your career studying these storms. How have you done that? I mean, have you observed them? Have you looked at the aftermath? What's the, what are the tools that you use? The tools that I have used personally, um, I've done a lot of uh, investigations and studies uh, post-tornadoes, so out in the field, gathering information on building performance and performance of uh, uh, infrastructure systems and uh, life safety performance of buildings. We've done um, sponsored some uh, special wind tunnel tests in um, tornado simulators are a special kind of wind tunnels that, that are able to, to generate tornado-like vortices. We've done computational modeling and um, uh, analysis to look at failures, to look at loads, on, uh, tornado loads under, under different circumstances, and then work through the, uh, uh, a lot with the codes and standards committees to develop and take a lot of these uh, new understandings of, of tornadic wind fields and tornado structure interaction and codify those and bring those to the point where we can uh, use those effectively for design of new structures. So the challenge then is to take the empirical information or the observational information about the winds, forces in, in tornadoes and convert them into something that we can use in building design. Is that right? Yes. And, and of course, some of the some of the challenges are, particularly with tornadoes, is that we're talking about in the observations. There's very few measurements, direct observation measurements of, of tornadic wind speeds. Uh, mostly, like particularly from uh, radar, uh, you know, the tornado. You see, oh, the tornado warning from uh, is given by the, the 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 weather service from the radar. That's picking up some motion in the parent storm, some circulation that might indicate that, that there's a tornado or maybe there's a debris ball if it's a bad tornado and there's debris being lost in the air. But they're not measuring the wind speeds in the tornado near the ground uh, due to the they're, 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 they're spaced very far apart, the curvature of the earth, the elevation of the beam angle and things like that. So we have very, very, very few measurements 
of wind speeds, tornadic wind speeds, close to the ground where the building environment are, really just a couple of dozen from some of these research radars, mobile Doppler, Doppler on wheels, uh, that have gone out. And even those, when those capture tornadic winds, those are typically going to be at some uh, higher elevation aloft, uh, you know, hundreds or, or thousands of feet aloft, not down in the lower, the very lowest part of the, of, of, of the uh, uh, atmosphere, right where, where the buildings are. So we have worked with the mobile radar community to obtain the, the, the few dozen records that we have where wind speeds were close to the ground and help understand what those properties are. And one of the properties for the tornado that's very different from all the other winds is it's not a boundary layer wind. In a, in a boundary layer, in a typical wind speed, the wind slows down as it gets close to the ground due to the friction uh, at the Earth's surface. For the tornado, because of the way the tornado circulates and the way it draws in air along the surface, some of the, the highest wind speeds, if we're looking in the vertical profile, in the vertical plane, can occur right down near the ground surface. Not the, they, they don't generally decrease all the way to the ground like they do in a boundary layer wind. So that's just one example of, of a, a characteristic that's very different in tornadic winds as opposed to, to other kind of winds. So you said something that caught my attention that talked about vertical wind speeds. And I'm trying to think back. When we learn how to design buildings, have we typically paid a lot of attention to vertical speeds as opposed to horizontal speeds? Well, just to clarify, I'm talking about the vertical profile of the horizontal speed. Hmm. So that, that, there, there is a, there's another aspect that's very different, is the vertical speed. So I'll get that back to that in a minute. The first, my previous comment, I was talking about the vertical profile, so if you take a slice, of what the horizontal wind speeds are. And like I said, in a regular wind, uh, the, the, those speeds decrease near the ground. In, in a tornadic wind, those speeds typically can be uniform or they can actually increase as you go close to the ground. And so those are the horizontal component. The other thing that is very different in a tornado is you have a strong vertical component. Now, in any kind of wind, there's going to be a vertical gustiness the same way that there's gustiness in the longitudinal direction, in the long wind direction, and in the lateral or the crosswind direction. There's, 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 there's gustiness in all three of the sort of the, 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 the directions and the axes. But for in, in the tornado, there, if you're close to the core of the tornado, what we call the corner flow region, that's typically a lot of where you're going to see the... the, the, the um, the funnel cloud or, or, or the, the, the cloud of the tornado or the dust or the debris in the area close to where we have the kind of our maximum wind uh, in, in that corner flow region, the air is flowing in kind of along parallel to the ground surface. Then it starts to turn and move upward as it shifts and, and rotate and the circulation starts to move upward. So if you get hit by the, if the building gets hit by the core of the tornado, then that's going to have a strong vertically up component. And that changes the aerodynamics of the building. That changes the, the relative angle of the uh, angle of attack of the wind hitting the, 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 the building, particularly on the roof. And that accentuates the uplift on the roof. So that's another difference in terms of the, the, from a tornadic wind to the, the, all the other kinds of wind is we have these strong updrafts, which accentuate the, the uplift on the roof. So the design loads that you've come up with in this new standard then are based on the analyses and the, the observations that you described. Is that a good description? Well, there's, also, there's also many other uh, aspects that, that were in there. We, we worked with Applied Research Associates and uh, Dr. Larry Twisdale, one of the leading uh, um, engineering uh, researchers in, 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 in fields in, in, in design for tornadoes. Uh, for, for many years, worked a lot with the, developing the tornado design for the nuclear industry, which is one of the few parts of, uh, types of buildings uh, over time that, that have been designed for tornadoes for, for a long time. So we did analysis of the historical um, uh, record of tornadoes going all the way back to 1950. 
We studied the climatology of tornadoes. Of course, we have different different uh, tornado characteristics in different parts of the country, right? We, if we get into the central United States, uh, over the Great Plains, over some of the southeast, whatever, we have uh, stronger tornadoes than we had, more, much more frequent tornadoes, for example, than we have out west of the Rockies or west of the Continental Divide. So we did a lot of work to study tornado climatology uh, using the, the uh, various tornado databases and, and tornado records and, and the technical literature, even going back to some of a lot of uh, Ted Fujita's uh, original works where he documented in, in exquisite detail many, many hundreds of, of, of tornadoes and their various characteristics. We worked and looked through, uh, developed a technique to account for what's known as the population bias, where we have a lot more tornadoes are reported in areas where there's more population. Uh, and so actually we worked with uh, building counts rather than population as, a slight more, as, a, as an indicator, because again, most tornadoes, unless they hit something, they're oftentimes are not recorded. They may, if they're in a rural area uh, and you're out where in, in, in much of the central U.S., the, the, the total area, we have less than 10 buildings per square mile. It's kind of hard for a tornado to hit something. Uh, unless it's a really big tornado. So we have a lot of smaller tornadoes just get missed. If they don't, you know, maybe just they, you know, knock down some crops, maybe a power pole, uh, you know, maybe a barn someplace, but oftentimes maybe things just don't get reported. So we, we, we work to, to understand the population bias to where, to be able to correct for the missing tornadoes in, in the records where, where tornadoes have occurred in areas where there isn't a lot of buildings. Uh, we work to understand a better the uh, path length and the path intensity variation of the tornado. Uh, you know, in the in the tornado database, they're just listed. There's a start point and an end point and a path width, and so that's you, basically the, the the most of the records are. Hey, you'd have to assume it would just be rectangular. There are many hundreds of tornadoes that have been studied in detail, and so our our, our team looked at looked at those to understand what's the the relative ratio of. Hey, how wide do the paths get and how narrow do they get? Because we know that they change over time and and, and they're not straight lines. And so the, the, the length and the width, so the, the characteristics, the intensity changes over the length. So we studied those characteristics. We went back and studied the, um, the wind speed uh, uh, and the damage as a function because how are tornadoes get into the database? Oh, the tornado is listed as a, a Fujita scale, an F3 for the older ones, or since 2007 we use the enhanced Fujita scale, it's an F4. Those, those wind scales, those tornado scales are based on observed damage. Well, but where did the where did the estimated wind speeds come from to be able to assign those? Those came from expert elicitation. They had half a dozen wind engineers, meteorologists, and structural engineers sitting around the table, uh, basically looking at, at, at pictures of damaged buildings, giving their estimates. Uh, these are, of course, top experts in the world, but giving their estimates of what those things, those those damage wind speeds would take to cause those damage. And so you end up with a bit of a circular logic right there. So we went back and did some explicit finite element modeling. Uh, for time-stepping, where we actually modeled every component of a building, uh, houses is our most common damage indicator, where we modeled every single shingle, every single nail connection, every two-by-four, every connection in there, ran probabilistic tornadoes across that uh, building to be able to understand what those loads are and as the, had probabilistic resistances to the loads, and so did, did many thousands of simulations or Monte Carlo simulations to be able to get a better handle on what are the actual wind speeds uh, that are associated with those uh, EF numbers rather than sort of the, the, the expert elicitation number? So we, we did all of those different kinds of analyses. That was a, a six-year, multi-million-dollar project with a lot of people and a lot of uh, work to, do, to develop that, to develop this new generation of probabilistic tornado hazard maps that takes into account a lot of these other factors that hadn't, hadn't been addressed before in previous 
uh, hazard maps that were used for, say, the tornado maps that were used for design of, uh, of nuclear facilities and really developed a, a significant new advance in understanding of the tornado hazard from, the, from a, a, a geospatial standpoint. And then we also did, uh, to account for a lot of these other factors, I'm talking about the differences in the tornadic winds and the straight-line wind, the rapid changes in speed and direction, and so the, the, those, all those other things account for our differences in our wind structure interaction and the, and the building aerodynamics uh, is different from the wind for, for tornado. And so we developed, in addition to developing a set of hazard maps uh, we, to, to go with the new standard, then we also had to develop all of these other procedures. Now, they're, they're all based overall on wind. It is still a kind of wind. It's still a fluid rushing past a building. Right? And so there's some characteristics are similar, and so some of the procedures are similar from what we do for wind. But almost every different parameter and almost every, every equation has some differences to account between the, the, what we have done for wind for a long time and what we're now doing for tornado to account for all of these different characteristics between tornadic winds and straight-line winds. So massive amount of work and information goes into, among other things, the development of these design loads, but also a foundation for understanding the natural process of the tornado, and it sounds to me like a foundation for continuing to expand the research in the future. Exactly. Talk to me about the standards. So the standards, if I understand it, don't tell me how to design a building. They tell me what loads to design for. Is that is that correct? Yes. So in the uh, in the new ASCE 722 standard, so that's minimum design loads on buildings, other structures, as you mentioned, that standard gets referenced in, in the building code uh, as the, uh, the the source of all information for what are the different loads on the building from uh, wind and earthquake and snow on the roof and all of your all of your different loads. And they tell you uh, these are what the loads are. Then it's up to the engineer or, or design professional to take and design the structure to resist those loads. Now, I will say importantly in in our ASE seven twenty two, so that's our first standard that covers tornado loads on conventional buildings. We have had the, the two big exceptions to that where we have been designing for tornadoes uh, in the past are nuclear facilities and storm shelters. Of course, if you're designing a tornado shelter, there's a separate standard, ICC 500, that governs design of, of, of the tornado shelters. And that's uh, the, the ICC 500 standard. There we're designing for the basically the, the worst realistic uh, tornado that, that we're going to get in the middle of the country, 250-mile-per-hour tornado with... Uh, uh, you have to design for two by four impact, fifteen pound two by four traveling at one hundred miles per hour for, for 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 debris impacts. So it's sort of a near worst case, and those are deterministic uh, deterministic analysis that, that we use to come up with those hazards. In ASCE seven twenty two, we've developed a, it's a probabilistic approach. We're we're designing to meet the target reliabilities or the target probabilities of failures that are specified in Chapter 1 of the ASE 7 and used by the other hazards, the other wind hazards and most of the other hazards in the standard. So what that means is for ASE 7, it turns out we're designing for the common tornado, the garden variety, the everyday sort of tornadoes, not the rarest of tornadoes, uh, because to meet the, those reliability targets, it works out that we'll use the same return period wind speeds for the tornado as we use the same return period for the straight line winds, and that um, that works out to be for, and it's a little complicated here. Let me explain. We have four different risk categories of structures in ASCE and, and also in, in, in the ASC seven, also in the building code. Our risk category one are for um, structures that represent a low hazard to human life. 
So that might be uh, unoccupied warehouses and, and many storage facilities, the, the things that where people aren't in all the time. Uh, our risk category, I'm going to skip over category two for a moment. Our risk category three is buildings that represent substantial hazard to human life. So those could be buildings that have a lot of occupants, like public assembly places and theaters, schools, uh, nursing homes, those kind of places. Risk category four is our, a lot of our critical and essential facilities, hospital, police, fire, EMS, uh, emergency operations centers, those kinds of things. Risk category two actually covers just about everything else, which is most buildings, houses and shops and, you know, man, most manufacturing facilities and occupied warehouses, those kind of things. So across that spectrum, we have different return periods that we use for our different hazards because each one of those facilities represents a different level of, of, of risk to human life. So let me just interrupt you for a second and, and clarify for my own purposes. When you say return categories, and I'm thinking about what we do, in, for example, in flood planning, you're re- effectively talking about the probability of occurrence in a given time period. Uh, yes, we could talk about annual probability of occurrence, or we can talk about mean recur- which is the, or the reciprocal mean recurrence interval yeah. or return period. And that's easier to think about. And know, yeah, for for flood, oftentimes we use it actually for the flood national flood insurance program. People are used to hearing about the hundred year flood, which is a one percent flood. Exactly, one percent yeah. flood. So for for wind to meet the reliability targets in ASCE seven for these four different categories of buildings. Everywhere is from the risk category one, which is the lowest hazard to human life, up to the risk category four, which is our most important. We use 300, 700, 1700, and 3000 years for our risk category one, two, three, and four. As it turns out, the tornadoes are infrequent. They're much more frequent than we thought because, again, by the time we account for the missing tornadoes and the records and, and those sorts of things. But they, they still are relatively infrequent compared to, say, other kind of winds and thunderstorms and hurricanes. And so, as it turns out, that at, at the for the lower return periods of the 300 and 700, which correspond to our risk category one and two buildings, tornadoes the tornado the tornado either won't get hit by a tornado, or the tornado speed is likely to be so low, 40 or 50 or 60 miles per hour, that the the, the, the load that you would get from that tornado would never um, be greater than the load that the building is already being designed for 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 the other kinds of winds. So the tor- the tornado provisions that we have in our ASC seven only apply to risk category three and four as a requirement. Now, again, if you want to do above-code requirements, there's certainly no reason that you couldn't go and uh, classify yourself as a higher category, but at least the minimum requirement, the tornado provisions are only required for risk category three and four, which is, again, is things like theaters and schools and nursing homes and fire, police, EMS, hospital, those, those kind of some of the more important uh, facilities to, to the community. Is there anything in, in the work that you've done and, and in the, the move from the research to the building codes that gives us some guidance on stick-built houses, the kind of uh, single-family houses a lot of people live in? We're just working on that now. So our first, we, 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 we work to develop the, the science and the technology to better understand the tornadoes, to develop our hazard maps, to develop understand our, our wind tornado structure interaction, to get those in the ASE 722 standard, which just got published last December. We're working to get those into the, tw- the 2022 standard and tornado loads into the 2024 building code. We just had the code hearings in Rochester uh, in April, uh, and it's uh, working through that process. We have now turned our attention, as you said, to start to say, well, what about risk category two? What about the most common buildings? They don't meet the requirements based on the reliability targets that are in ASC 7 or the required probabilities of failure. Tornadoes are too infrequent, but we're starting to look at and we'll, this will be the next major project we're working on over the next few years, is 
well, out of all of our understanding and of all our understanding of the, of the, 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 the vulnerabilities, the structure, wind structure interaction, which of those technologies and what, what things do we need to do that would make sense for homes, multifamily construction, other risk category two type buildings, and to develop a design guide for that and to also see some of those, perhaps some of those individual specific items we may want to try to put into the building code uh, in, in the future. I'll give a for example. Uh, a lot of our study that we did after uh, um, the Joplin tornado, uh, we looked in detail at the performance of uh, housing uh, as, a, as a follow-on to, to our, our, our study. Um, so we, we digitized. There was about 7,500 houses in, in the town of Joplin were damaged or destroyed. Um, we digitized information for about half of those across the range from fully destroyed to minor damage, across the, the range of, of, of different the wind fields and different wind speeds in, in, in different parts of the different parts of the city, and we we took all of the information that we, all the photographs we could get before the storm, you know, aerial imagery and Google Street View and all those sorts of things. And for a few thousand houses, we have hundreds of fields of data. Well, what's the um, uh, orientation of the house? What is the plan? Is it one story or two story? Is it a hip roof or a gable roof? What's the roof slope? We can tell that. Hey, the Google, the Google, the Google uh, Street View images. We can get a pretty good estimate of the roof slope from that. Does it have dormers? Does it have chimneys? Does it have a single car garage, a double car garage? Does it have an attached or disattached, uh, unattached? So almost any characteristic you can imagine that we think might affect the wind resistance of that building, based on the geometry and the shape uh, of the building. We've got many hundreds of fields for that, and then we did post storm analysis. From aerial views, uh, from from uh, um, some some research, some of some people in the research community had had done drive by with with Google Light, Google Street View like type equipment on vehicles, and then we were able to document. Okay, what percentage of the roof was lost? Where was the roof damaged? Was it over the garage? Was it over this uh, different parts of the house? How many windows were broken? Could we see all those sorts of things? And then started to do analysis of those. Ba- we also have the tax assessor data. So we know the year built for, for most of these structures. We know some information. Does it have a basement or not? And some other information that's the size, the square footage. We, we know those kind of things are, are recorded in the tax assessor database. And so for these several thousand buildings, we started to do correlations and to investigate, well, which features make a big difference in the performance of the home? One of the uh, an enormously strong correlation is between if you lost the garage door, then you typically would either blow out the roof of the, of the above of the house above the garage, and maybe that that the blowing out that roof would actually uh, perpetuate across the rest of the roof, and or you would lose the back walls, side walls of, of of the garage. And we've identified also one of the challenges with that is most in much part many parts of the country you can't buy even it's, it's very hard to even find a wind rated door. The building code tells us that you're supposed to when you design any building. You calculate what those estimated wind pressures are on each different surface, and you're supposed to pick products that resist those. Um, but even until the most recent edition of the building code, there wasn't even a requirement that garage doors even had to have a label that says what the resistance was. And even now that they have to have that, uh, many places, except for in hurricane country, where the, the, the code enforcement is, is somewhat stricter the, uh, for that, the garage door that you put on may not be wind rated. It may never have been tested. You don't even know what you're getting oftentimes. For that door, so we've actually started a working group. Uh, we've got some industry representatives, some other representatives. NISTA, NIST has done research on this. Other groups have published on this that this garage door is a huge issue. If we can improve the garage door, make sure we get it the right rating and, and, and the right product on the garage door. That's going to help prevent a significant amount of, of, of damage that we have from 
from tornadoes. So re- really in- interesting description of, of the process. And my sense in thinking about this conversation with you was asking what's left to be done. And you've given us a pretty good idea that there's plenty left to be done to move in the direction of not just the, the, the load standards, but building codes. I'll give you one minute to explain to me how we get to building codes from the loading standards. It seems like that's outside of your purview. Is that fair to say? Well, no, it, it, at NIST, our, and that's the National Institute of Standards Technology. We're the National Metrology Institute. And we don't say, even though standards in our name, we don't set standards. We work to develop underlying technologies and then work with the private sector standards to advance uh, standards and, and codes. So we also work with the codes. So I said I worked uh, with um, at NIST. We worked with American Society of Civil Engineers and FEMA. We wrote a proposal uh, that was submitted this past January to get the tornado loads from ASE 7 incorporated into the 2024 edition of the building code. Uh, we went to Rochester when they had the code hearings, a whole team of us uh, from many different agencies and, and the private sector uh, proposed uh, proposed that and, and uh, um, presented that proposal to the, to the building code um, uh, structural committee. Uh, it turns out we the, 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 that action passed by a vote of 14 to 0. Uh, there was no there was no opposition. That's still not the final end of the process. There still has to have a public comment period, which closes this summer. Then there'll be a public comment hearings in the fall, and then there'll be a final uh, uh, vote of, of the, the the governmental membership of of the um, of the code council. Uh, but it looks like it, it's a there's a good chance that we'll be able to get those requirements for the risk category three and four buildings uh, into into the building code. And again, like I said, so our next step then is we're working on now we're working focusing more of our R and D on which of those things would make sense for houses, for other kinds of uh, uh, living quarters, say multifamily residential and other kinds of risk category two buildings. And that, that'll be a, a major focus over the next several years. It sounds like um, if I understand you, the, your career path, that you're living your dream and you're doing some work that's tremendously important for the safety of our population going forward. Mark, it's been a delight to talk with you. I've learned a huge amount. Uh, we could spend another hour, but we don't have another hour. So thank you very much for taking us on this this trip, and I, I wish you success in your future work. And we'll keep an eye on what comes out of, the, out of NIST and, and your group. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to The Infrastructure Show. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, please subscribe to our podcast and encourage your friends to join us too. The Infrastructure Show is recorded at the Studio Media Recording Company in Evanston, Illinois, under the direction of Scott Steinman, recording engineer with a commitment to great sound. Our producer is Marion Sowers, a journalist with a passion for infrastructure. And I am Professor Joseph Schofer. Few people are more curious about infrastructure than I.